Well, good morning. Good to see everybody today. Um, I was mentioning to Tim and a few of you here, I just got back from China on Friday. I was there teaching for two weeks and had a wonderful time, but my clock's off. So if I start saying something really weird this morning, just ignore me and forgive me uh, for that. But hopefully that won't be the case. It was my first trip to China, and um, I was uh, I was intrigued by a couple things. Uh, the fellow I, I stayed with, I mean, one of the things that's really grieved him, Western culture has come into China. Unfortunately, it's the worst part of Western culture. You know, it's, uh, it's Hollywood, and it's our materialism, and it's our pop singers, and it's it, that's the stuff that... Now the young people in China are gravitating to. They want to be like that star and that person. And same problem we have in this country, isn't it? And you know, I was thinking about that. Isn't it, uh, isn't it strange who we make our idols in, in this day? You find somebody who's like really good at one area of life, whether it's singing or sports, and we say, boy, I want to be like that person. You know what I mean? And then you track with that person, and what you find is they live a life that's compartmentalized. Where they're like really good there, and they're really lousy at life. Isn't that what happens so often? What I love about the scripture, the scripture is not into being compartmentalized. Scripture is into being integrated into all of life. So that you, you, you're able to do well at home, and at church, and at work, in your neighborhood, you name it. And in the Old Testament, I want to look at a familiar passage in Proverbs 3. In the Old Testament, the term that is used to kind of pull all that together is the term wisdom. I mean, wisdom is about living life skillfully. What I love about it, it doesn't matter if you're 14 or 84. Your life experience changes, doesn't it? doesn't matter if you're single or married or divorced. It doesn't matter. The scripture is about coming to us wherever we are and allowing us to begin to learn what it means to live life skillfully. In all areas of our life, at work, at home, in our relationships, in our responsibilities, all of those things. What I'd like to talk to you about today is where that all begins. So if God wants us to live life skillfully, to be wise, where does it start? What what does it look like at its very core? When you come to Proverbs chapter 3, and I'm going to read some very familiar verses, verses 5 to 12. The Bible tells us, look, if you and I are going to live life skillfully, wisely, in all of our relationships, in all of our responsibilities, it all starts with how we relate to God. And that's what Proverbs 3, 5 to 12 talks all about. And I, and I know if you've been around Christianity for any period of time, if you don't know, if you haven't heard Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, you haven't been breathing or listening or something. Because I mean, it's, just, it's part of our life. But the reason we go back to it a lot is because there's a lot of great things there. And the other thing I found in my own personal experience I struggle with this stuff every week of my life. My guess is you do too. 
So let's go back and look at what, does a, what is the, the, the foundation of living life skillfully in our relationship with God. Let's, let's unpack that, see what that looks like, and I hope you'll take the application to your own experience, wherever that might be. In Proverbs chapter 3, and verse 5, he gives a whole series of, of characteristics of a relationship with God. What does it mean to live life wisely? He starts out in verse 5 by saying this. It means to rest in God fully. Look at what the text says. Trust in the Lord with half of your heart. Does anybody's translation say that? Now what's it say? It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. Here's what happens if you're like me. Um, trust is a funny issue. You think about some of the people you trust in life. And it's a little bit strange. We're over in China. And um, I'm, live, I'm with one guy and I had to get downtown. And I had to take a taxi. And... Um, Tim, I think Tim's shared this. It's been his experience over in Asia, too. <laughs> but um, they're some of the craziest drivers I ever saw in my life. I mean, they're, they're, they have stoplights. This isn't a major city. Seven million people, Chindao. And uh, But for some reason, they haven't figured out that you should, have, you should have stop signs, too. And so you're driving down the, this major road, and if there's a light, it's great. But on some of these other crossroads, there's no light. And so people are just like, just drive it and fading and I, it, I never saw one accident when I was there but it, it's crazy they were really nutty drivers driving on the other side of the road drive, just doing whatever they have to do it, it was nutty things but, but for some reason and I didn't speak the language I would get in with a card to say where I wanted to go and I was trusting that guy which was kind of crazy but somehow in God's good grace it all worked out and, and I'm here today it, it, it's an amazing thing but it's funny who you trust sometimes Right? Why is it that we don't fully trust God? I mean, before I was, he was. And after I'm gone, he will be. And so, here I am. I'm 50 years old. I've lived a very short life, 50 years compared to God. And in that period of time, there's time. Remember it says here, don't lean on your own understanding. Isn't this what happens? come to a decision in my life and I say to myself, you know, I think God wants me to do that. But then I begin to say to myself, yeah, but if I do that, right? You see what I'm doing? And, and I'm beginning to put weight on my own understanding. I'm saying, well, well this might happen or that might happen or, or this might happen. And, 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 and what happens in that whole mix is, before you know it, I'm putting more weight on Doug Finkbeiner. Like, what do I know? I, I know this much... Before a God who knows everything. And I tend to put more weight on my own understanding than I do on God. And the writer of Proverbs says, look, 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 look. If you want to live life skillfully, you know where it starts? When God says it, you just do it. You don't worry about the ramifications because you know he's reliable. And you know, whatever happens, it comes through his watch care. And you just, you will put your pressure somewhere. You will lean somewhere. Do you lean on yourself? Or should you ultimately lean on God? And this text tells us repeatedly again and again, 
whatever your situation is, if it's an ethical decision at, at work, rather than say, well, if I do this, this might happen, you just say, I know what God wants me to do, and you just do it. If it's a decision at home, and you say, no, no, God, I know what you want me to do, then you just do it. And you leave the results with Him. And when we live our life that way in all areas, consistently, we put our weight on God rather than on ourselves. That is part of wisdom living. And the life that we live will be the life that God has designed for us. But it's not easy, is it? When you just, you look at each one of those areas of your life and you think, man, I... And God says in this passage, look, just trust me. I am for you. I am not against you. And we know that. Jesus has died for us. He loves us. Put your pressure, put, put, put your weight on me. Secondly, not only should we rest in God fully, but look at verse 6. We should know God pervasively. Look at what it says. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Have you noticed in this passage, it doesn't give us any wiggle room? Trust in the Lord with what? All your heart. In all your ways, acknowledge him. See, it's a, it's, it's a full package. The Christian life is never to be compartmentalized. It touches all areas and all relationships at all times. So he says, look, in every situation in life, seek to know me. Seek to learn from me. Let me give you an illustration of this. And I, I've used it here before. I don't remember where or what, in what context. But you'll see why. I, I would like to use it with this passage. Um, and this is an old illustration, but that's okay. This is actually an illustration after my wife and I had only been married maybe two years. No kids yet, uh, which is hard to believe now that I got six. But, but anyway, at, at the time, I was, uh, I was a youth pastor at our church. And uh, I called Sherry up on the phone. I said, honey, I'll be home six o'clock for dinner I have to go back out at seven to visit some teens or I don't I don't know something something was going on and could you just have supper ready now I thought that was a pretty reasonable request don't you you know I mean I was thinking I'd have a whole hour with my wife we'd eat we'd laugh we'd talk all the stuff you know and so I have all, I'm driving home I'm imagining all this and I pull into the parking lot and I get out and I walk into the kitchen and uh, she hadn't even started supper yet and it's six o'clock and i'm not stupid I, I know it takes at least 30 minutes to make a make a supper so i'm thinking out time wise and i'm kind of ticked off actually I'm, I'm thinking like how unreasonable of her you know this was our time together and she thinks something else is more important than that and it really bugged me and um so i didn't hug her and kiss her and ask her how her day was i was kind of upset and i just kind of whisked right by her but I felt guilty doing that too, you know, because I am a pastor after all. And um, I was taking, I was taking a, a course down at Westminster Seminary at the time on the book of Proverbs. And we were translating through the book in the Hebrew. And uh, so I went by her and I thought, I, I felt somewhat guilty, so I figured I had to do something that looked spiritual at least a little bit. So I looked back and I said, uh, Sherry, uh, I'm going to be in the living room translating from the Bible. I got ticked off, and I sat down at the chair, and I opened up my t 
text and where am I anyway? I told her and she didn't have, you know, yeah, you mumble to yourself, you know. And my style, when I, I will often, when I'm upset with my wife, I'll mumble under my breath loud enough so she can hear me, but not loud enough so she knows what I'm saying, you know. Just, I mean, it's my thing. It's my, we all do these, they're little kid games, aren't they? Those are my thing. So, so I'm, I'm all ticked off. I'm saying, I can't believe it. I told her this. And, you know, where am I? And I flipped it open. And you know where I was? I was right here. I flipped it. What am I translating it? In every situation of life, ask yourself, what does God want you to do? And ask him what lessons he has for you. I mean, right? Isn't that what it's saying? And when I walked into the house, the last person I was thinking about was God. Who was I thinking about? Right here. You know? Me. And it was like the Spirit of God took a knife and just drove it into my heart and said, Doug, you're just thinking about yourself. Now, I wasn't having like gross, vile, terrible thoughts like I'm going to do something. I just want to have supper with my wife. I don't think that's like terrible. Nobody will look at me and say, what a pervert. I, you know, I, mean, it's just, I mean, it's just kind of like life, isn't it? You know? But, but, but what happened in that moment is I took something, like Tim had prayed, I took something which is fine in and of itself, intimacy with your wife and all that kind of good stuff, and I put it in the very core of my heart and I say, if life is going to work, then Shuri has to live for my glory and my comfort. Isn't that what I was saying? Because, and because she didn't worship at my shrine, <laughs> the shrine of Doug's pleasure, and, and, and whatever you want to call the thing. Because she didn't worship there. I meted out judgment against her and gave her the silent treatment. Isn't that what I did? So I was playing God in that moment. It's a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing that I was doing. And instead, what I should have come into that house and that happened, I, I, should, I mean, look, for, for, I, it would have been wrong for me to say, oh, praise the Lord, I'm glad supper's not ready. I mean, come on, who feels like that? That would have been wrong, right? But I should have been constructive in what I said to her. I should have thought through, okay, honey, well, how was your day? I want you to know I'm disappointed. What are we going to do now? Or something. Something that was constructive and not destructive. If at the core of my heart, I'm asking myself, okay, my wife is disappointing me. What does it mean for me to know God now? Does he want me to extend his mercy to her the way he's extended it to me all my life? Maybe that's the lesson, right? I mean, the point is this, folks. You know what I love about Christianity? There is no such thing as a lost opportunity if we'll take it. Everything I experience in life is meant to draw me to God. There's always lessons to be learned. There's always something. That's what makes Christianity so wonderful. And this text is saying, look, if you're going to live wisely, it means whatever you come across in life, whatever, good, bad, doesn't matter. You always ask yourself, God, how can I know you in this moment? What are you trying to teach me in this moment? God, please, I, I'm here. I'm open. Do your work. And, and nobody does this, a you know, nobody bats a thousand in this area. I know that. But folks, as we learn in our life to do that more and more and more, you will learn the joy and freedom of wisdom living. I mean, that's what God wants for you. Look at the promise that he gives us there in verse 6. 
And he will straighten your paths. It's a really interesting promise. Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean necessarily that he's going to make your life easy. I wish I could promise you that. I wish I could tell you, look, if you walk with God, you do what he wants you to do, life will be easy. Because you know what? Sometimes it's harder. The other thing that challenged me over in China was spending time with men who know what it, mean, who know what it means to sacrifice for God and to pay for it in the culture. You know, men who knows what it means because they say, I'm a Christian in that culture, they lose their jobs. Or they're harassed. Or in some of the worst forms, they're put in prison. And, and so, so, so to trust God, to know God, to walk with God, doesn't mean necessarily my life is easy. I know saints who, as they walk with God, seem to have more physical problems not less. Which doesn't fully make sense to me. But it is what it is. But you know what this text is saying? When, when your path is straightened out before you, often in the book of Proverbs, the way of the fool is likened to somebody kind of walking through a, a bramble, series of bramble bushes and backing out of one-way streets. And it's a mess. And what this passage is promising us is this. When you rest in God fully, when you know him pervasively, your life will have direction and meaning and purpose in such a way that you will be able to rejoice that you've done it God's way. I mean, that's the promise. To be able to live a life and say, it's made a difference. There's significance here. It's a great promise. So what does it mean to live life wisely in our relationship with God? Rest in Him fully. Know Him pervasively. Look at the next verse. Verse 7. Thirdly, it means to take God seriously. Notice what he says. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. See what he does in this verse? He gives us a not this but this approach, right? Be not wise in thine own eyes. In its very worst form, it's what we would call atheism. In the Psalms, we'll often read, the fool has said in his heart, what? There is no God. And what does a fool do? A fool is wise in his own eyes, and what he says is, life makes sense if I'm at the center and I can really control what happens. So it's all about what we call pride. Now my guess is nobody in here would claim to be an atheist. Now maybe, maybe you're visiting, but I, I, I doubt that. I mean, the vast majority of you are believers. You, 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 you love God. You want to follow Him. I, I believe that. But the psalmist, one, I mean, the, the, the writer of Proverbs wouldn't have to say this if believers didn't struggle with this. Can Doug Finkbeiner become wise in his own eyes? Oh man, much more than I like to admit. And where it becomes a struggle for me is, I, um, I begin to think to myself, you know, I can kind of control this myself. 
I, I can manipulate and, 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 and life will kind of be the way I want it to be. And, and, and what happens is it all centers around me. David, David did this in the most terrible fashion when he sinned against God in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Remember the sin with Bathsheba? One of the saddest things about that is, is not only that he committed the act of adultery, which was, was a terrible thing, but it was nine months of cover-up. Nine months in which David was trying to be wise in his own eyes. I can control this. I can make life work by doing it my own way. And that's exactly what he did for nine months. And what he found is, it didn't work, did it? And so he says, on the one hand, don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't be proud. Don't be saying, I can control. I can make it happen. It's about me. No, 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 no. Don't do that. Rather, fear God and flee from evil. Which must mean, if he says fear God and flee from evil, that whatever was going over here was doing evil, right? So don't do that. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Rather, fear God and flee from evil. Fearing God, growing up, if you would have asked me what does it mean to fear God as a young boy, I think I would have told you mean, it means to be scared of God. Is that what the Bible means when it says fearing God? Or does it mean I am in awe of who he is? And I take him seriously. And, and that's both positive and negative, isn't it? Taking seriously means when God says, don't play with that sin. Don't mess around with that. No, you can't harbor it in your heart and get away with it. I take him serious. And I really believe it. And when God says, I love you and I am for you, I take him serious with that too. It means, once again, my entire life is marked by this consciousness of God. This is, Lord, I take you serious. I, I hold you in all and great respect for who you are. You are holy and magnificent. And also, Lord, you are merciful and tender. And I take you seriously, God, for who you are. Which means my life is not about doing that which would dishonor him. Rather, I flee from those things because I stand before him. You know what I can tell you? If you and I live that way, we will never regret it at the end of our days, will we? And when you stand in his presence and he says to you, well done, good and faithful servant. I mean, I don't know what that's like. I, I, you know, we've all been honored by individuals and companies and sports teams through the years, and they're all really wonderful things, and I like them. None of which can compare to the God of the universe looking at his children and saying, well done. So he says, look, if you're going to live life skillfully, you've got to take God seriously. Notice the promise that comes in verse 8 for that. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Do you remember in Psalm 32, when David is cataloging how he felt in that nine-month period of time? Or... Probably that at particular event. In that nine month period of time when he had sinned against God. And he continued to go to the tabernacle. He continued to do everything he was supposed to do. But when he went, 
He was a hypocrite in his heart. He was living wisely only in his own eyes. And he says in Psalm 32 that as I went through that experience, it was like my bones inside me were just tearing me apart. I was crumbling from within. And the beauty of this text is it says, when you and I live a life where we fear God and we take him seriously, that kind of guilt and shame and conviction and discipline that comes upon our lives that often has physical ramifications, we're freed from. And so he can say in verse 8, look, it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. It's not a promise that's saying you'll never be sick if you're a Christian. That's not the point. But that kind of sickness that comes from shame and disobedience and discipline, that kind of, that kind of um, physical problems you'll never have to experience. Isn't that a great promise? Look, he says, look, rest in God fully. Know him pervasively. Take him seriously. And he's going to go on to say here in verse 9, give to him graciously. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce that your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with new wine. Now, now once again, is that saying that if you give God $1,000, you'll get a check back for 10000 That's a pretty good deal. So, hey, man, I'll give him 10 and get 50, 50 and 100. Hey, I like this. Tit for, it's not even tit for tat. I mean, it's better than that. Is, is that what this text is saying? If you're using it and applying it like that, that's not at all what the text is saying. A couple things to keep in mind. In the Old Testament, so many of the promises that came to saints in the Old Testament were bound up in the land, weren't they? And, and if you want to know if Israel was doing good, in the relationship with God, you can often look at how productive are they in their at harvest season. Because that was the way that God would often bless them. Physical object lessons right there before them all the time. But that's not true for us in the New Testament, is it? I mean, you can find when you read through your New Testament that some of the most giving saints that you find were poor. So the text is not a promise that if you want to be rich, give. Because that's not the point. Here's the point. We should give to God graciously because God owns it all. And he's called us to be stewards. And this text is just saying, look, when you give, whether it's, in this case, it's your treasure, but we could say your time, your treasure, your talents, all that stuff. When you give to God, you are always saying, God, I'm giving back to you because I realize that you own it all. And when we live our lives like that, it doesn't mean we're going to be physically rich. It does mean we're going to be spiritually rich in the New Testament. And, and you will live a life where you will truly experience God's blessings because you realize everything you own is His. And you give to Him because He's the owner of all. And when we live like that, we begin to experience blessings which are far more valuable than anything you can put a price tag on. You know that old Visa commercial? You know, it says like, you know, going to a ball game, $100. Actually, that's probably a pretty good price anymore. But, you know, hot dog, $25. You know, baseball games, you know what that's like. Um, 
moment with your child, priceless. Right? When you and I give back to God, what we experience is priceless. Rest in God fully. Know Him pervasively. Take Him seriously. Give to Him graciously. And lastly, in verses 11 and 12, submit to Him continually. Notice what the text says. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of His reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son, in whom he delights. When I say to you the word discipline, do you think positive or negative normally? Don't you normally think negative? Yeah. And there is. There is a form of discipline that we call corrective discipline. My children do something wrong, I correct them. Okay. But there's another form of discipline which we call formative. It's positive. It just means I'm training my children so that they're going to be you know, good citizens and, and good Christians as they grow up. It's just, it, they haven't done anything wrong. I'm just, I'm just training them. The Bible can use discipline in both of these ways. And when you see this text quoted in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 12, it's focusing in on that positive part. So when I say discipline to you, don't just think God is correcting me because I've done something wrong. That's true. He does. But so often when things come into our lives and we're trying to walk with him, it's not because he's correcting us for anything. It's because he's training us. And he has a lesson to teach us. And you know what our responses are if we're not very careful? What does it say here? It says, my son, do not despise or be weary. You know what often happens when God brings something into my life which I don't like? I either get mad at him, despise, or I just want to give up, become weary. Isn't that our tendency? You know, God brings a trial into your life. It, it could be a physical trial, a relational trial. It could be a work-related issue. All kinds of things. And my tendency is either to say, look, God doesn't like me and become angry with him, or just to kind of give up on life and get discouraged. And the writer knows our tendency, or he wouldn't tell us that. He says, look, 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 look. Don't, don't be angry and don't give up. Well, why? Because God loves you and delights in you is what he says. And I have to tell you, when I'm going through a trial, I don't feel like God is terribly loving in that moment. Do you? I mean, the way I normally feel is, God, why are you doing this to me? Would you please get rid of it quickly? That's what I want him to do. And because you're not, you must be against me. That's how I feel. When in reality, God says, Doug, I've placed that on you because I love you and I delight in you in the person of my son. That's reality. It just doesn't feel it. In the moment. And this text says, look, if you are going to live life skillfully, one thing's for sure. Trouble will come your way. Difficulties will come. I wish I could tell you, like, I mean, if I could, like, if I could, like, script my life, it would be comfortable and easy 
and then I die. You know, not, not soon. 80 years, 90 years, whatever. Not comfortable, but is that the way life is? It's not. Life is filled with a whole series of troubles, and it comes, and our first tendency when it comes is to think, God must be against me. And God is saying, I'm not against you. I delight in you, and I love you. And I'm up to something, even though you may not know what it is. I am up to something if you'll just not resist it, but stay with me through it. Watch what I will do. It's interesting to me when you read through Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5, and I don't know, down to verse maybe 11 or something like that. It's an extended commentary on these two verses. And it's an incredible passage. And one of the things it tells us is, you know what? Discipline is always inevitable in the Christian's life. Which means pain is coming. And I don't like that. I don't mean physical pain. It could be emotional pain. It could be, but it's just pressure. And I don't like that. But it's inevitable for us. If you're his son, if you're his daughter, it's part of life. Um, and I probably have used this illustration with you before, but, but the image that comes to me when I think about Hebrews 12 is when my kids were young and, uh, and we would have to spank them sometimes. <coughs> I never had one of my kids come into the bedroom and say, Dad, thank you so much for doing this. You love me, you're for me, so just swing away because I'm very, you know, you know, Dad, this is so wonderful. You love me. No, 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 no. My kids are cutting me deals left and right in those moments. You know, I promise I won't if you, you know, all that whole thing. Am I right, parents? I mean, that's the way it works. Am I right, kids? Isn't that what we do? And I tend to do the same thing with God. And, and, and it may not even be that he's correcting me. It's just something he brings into my life. And I struggle with it. And I say, God, get it away from me. I don't like it. And God says, no, 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 Doug. You need this in your life right now for purposes which you will never understand possibly until you get to heaven. But you can trust me because I love you and I delight in you. Brothers and sisters, If we live our life this way, if we rest in God fully, seek to know Him pervasively, take Him seriously, give to Him graciously, submit to Him continually. If we do that, don't be surprised what He does in your life. And don't be surprised when people come and they look at you and they say, how do you do it? Because you will be living a model that's integrated and not compartmentalized. Isn't that true? And that's what God wants for us. This text is telling us very simply. Being obsessed with God, when you're obsessed with the God who is for you, then you begin to experience what wisdom living is all about. Because obsession with God makes all the difference in how we live our lives. Brothers and sisters, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's the norm. But I'm saying if we live this way, 
you will experience wisdom living because it's God's design.